everyone, welcome to Social Point. I'm Seamus McGinnis. It's so great to have you here for our very first episode. We got a ton to talk about. Of course, there's the 2020 election. Trump has COVID. He's still in Walter Reed as of right now. And then we have a pre-produced history segment for you about Jakarta and Indonesia 1965, which I promise you is more interesting than it sounds right now. And we have a great interview with Mr. Thomas Durkin, who is a legendary Chicago lawyer. We talk about Trump and the Supreme Court, his federal court appointees, and what all that means for our civil rights going forward. But before we get started, I just want to take a second to talk a little bit about the idea behind this show, because it's kind of a, a web show slash podcast thing. And I've never really done anything like this before, so I do, I do ask that you be a little bit patient with me in terms of just putting everything together. It's kind of weird being on camera even, but you know, just stick with me a little bit. Uh, but, but more generally, the idea here was that you know, it's looking more and more likely like Joe Biden's going to win the 2020 election. So a poll came out this morning that he leads 14 points nationally uh, in battleground states. He does now have a commanding lead in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, it's tight in Iowa, in Ohio, in Florida. So it's looking like Trump has a very tough path to 270 for the Electoral College. But of course, that's what we said in November 2016. So I will never trust anything again, to be honest. But the point here is, you know, John Mulaney has a bit about a horse being loose in the hospital being kind of a metaphor for Trump's administration. And with him and Walter Reed right now, he quite literally is the horse loose in the hospital. But the point is, he also talks about how we kind of trusted Obama. That, oh, you could point out how, oh, Obama did the same thing as Trump did here. And the defense tends to be, oh, I trusted Obama. Obama knows what he's doing. He knows more than I do. He has access to intelligence. He must, you know, I, I trust what he had to do. We don't give Trump that benefit of the doubt at all. And rightly so. I mean, he's shown time and time again that he is no smarter and no more special than the rest of us. Although his supporters would probably argue me with me on that. But my point is that we tend to kind of have this aura around the Oval Office. And Trump has, thankfully, I think that's kind of the silver lining of his administration, is that people now recognize that the president is no more special than the rest of us. And there's no kind of presumption of, uh, a presumption of privilege that he must be right because he's the president. But what's important is, as worn out as we are, as long as the past four years have been, if Joe Biden is to win, we cannot go back to sleep. We cannot go back to trusting the president just because he agrees with us on things. Because, I mean, honestly, I don't agree with Joe Biden on much of anything. But even if you do see him as more of an ally than Trump, which you probably should at this point, even then we cannot go back to sleep. We don't have time. All the crises that we face and all the problems that we've complained about and talked about for four years now under Trump are not going to go away. We still have over 80 million people who don't actually have enough health insurance. We have, of course, the COVID crash and the recognition how vulnerable our society is to issues like pandemics that don't end up being prepared for because they're not profitable for medical companies to handle. And then, of course, there is the looming existential threat to our planet of climate change. There's constant wildfires in California. There are hurricanes battering the southeast coast for months now. We're having record hurricane seasons. We're having record storm seasons. 
And you're probably noticing it even in your own home, wherever it is, that the weather patterns are getting more extreme. That's because climate change is by far the biggest threat facing us over the next several decades. And we do not have four more years to sit around and give Biden the benefit of the doubt that he's doing enough because it's very clear that he will not unless we force him to. But we haven't even tried to launch any kind of activism campaigns against Trump because we know he doesn't even believe it's real. And so Biden, we actually have an opportunity to push him towards a Green New Deal, which is the only true solution to solving climate change going forward. And we need world leadership also on this issue. But the only way that we're going to do that is if we all stand up and actually take control of our future. And that's why it's so important that we don't go back to sleep because all these issues are going to be there. And we have to remember that nothing is going to go away just because someone in blue rather than someone in red is in the White House. But without further ado, let's get into the news. So lately, I know Trump has been in the hospital and that's pretty much all anyone's been thinking about. But before that, he was launching a really coordinated campaign to try and reduce trust in the election. He keeps talking about voter fraud, even at the debates. As far as the ballots are concerned, it's a disaster. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. And of course, at the debate also, he did tell the Proud Boys, the Nazi white supremacist group, to stand back and stand by. But more generally, he keeps talking about how he won't agree to a transition of power because he doesn't trust the ballots. And at one point he said, well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots and the ballots are a disaster. Get rid of the ballots and you'll have a very, there won't be a transfer, frankly, there will be a continuation. Now, this is very similar to what he talked about in 2016. Of course, you know, if you remember, he was already setting up for complaining about voter fraud and how the election was going to be fake. And then he won. And so he had to kind of stick by it to, you know, act like he wasn't a total hypocrite, but it became very, very apparent that he was totally lying about it. I mean, his intelligence agencies did investigations and nothing came back. And there is no evidence that mail-in ballots are going to somehow have massive voter fraud occurring. But that's not his only strategy going forward to try and steal this election. I mean, he's been talking to the Republican state legislators about how he wants to basically have them appoint their own electors to totally ignore the popular vote and just totally steal this election. And the more he can try to contest that vote and push off the day of the election, he can put pressure on them to just make the decision themselves. And the problem is the Republican Party does control a majority of the states. And so he has a whole number of ways of going about this. He can try to delay the election. He can try to just ignore and stop the vote count the night of, which, by the way, we do need to think about this in terms of maybe election week, because the night of the election on Tuesday, it might very well turn totally red on the map. Now, if it's a total landslide, that's not going to happen. But because a majority of Democratic voters are voting by mail and a majority of Republican voters are not, it's very, very likely that as they start to count the in-person ballots, Trump is going to take a massive lead. But that shouldn't freak you out unless he does try to freeze voting during that time. But more generally, Biden will have a majority of his votes come in later, but they can't start opening them until Election Day. So just keep that in mind. But the problem is, even if Trump ends up losing the election in the end, 
While Mitch McConnell has said, oh, there will be a peaceful transition of power, he has not accounted for the fact that they might just try to steal the election itself because it's far more legitimate to try and delegitimize the election and say you won it than to say, oh, I'm just, look, we lost, but I don't care. I mean, no one's going to actually listen to that. Well, the white supremacists will, but, you know, the majority of us will not at all care about what Trump has to say then. But the problem is Trump has fully broadcasted that he's not going to listen to the vote count. And Joe Biden is being pretty naive about his reaction. He said that, I promise you, I'm absolutely convinced the military will escort him from the White House with great dispatch. It's not that simple. I mean, the military, multiple generals now, have said that they won't get involved in an election dispute issue. And this is really a huge problem. I mean, by now, if it's not obvious that Trump is willing to be to do whatever he has to do in order to become a dictator, I mean, I don't know what's going to become more obvious. He just the other day was talking about how he wants to be in office another 16 years. And that's why we have to all stay aware of this and be thinking about what it is that we're going to do after November 3rd if he tries to actually pull off this coup. Because it's becoming more and more likely that we're going to look like a lot of the countries around the world that we've tried to mess with their elections in. Because he's going to try and pull off an actual far-right coup. And the only way that we can try and stop it is through massive civil action. We all need to be willing to get out into the streets. We all need to be willing to protest and launch other kinds of organizing efforts. And we all need to start thinking about that now. And that, of course, will be a majority of our conversations over the next month. Believe me, I don't want to talk about the election all the time either. But the focus of this show, at least at the start, is going to be on 2020. But after the fact, tons of other stuff to talk about that's always pressing. You know, we'll get to all that. But I want to go to something a little bit different now, because as important as it is to follow the news all day, every day, what did Trump tweet today? And things have gotten obviously worse over the past four years, especially because of COVID. I mean, the day in, day out changes of whatever stupid thing that Trump said today has no bearing on our personal lives. I mean, his policies obviously do. I'm not saying that he's somehow like inconsequential to our lives. But a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff that when you turn on the news they're talking about is just meant to keep you in fear and is not really meant to, you know, better your life or help your understanding of the situation. And that's what makes history so important because we have to understand at the same time as everything else is happening, what's the context that everything is operating in? Because a lot of the time, especially what we see the Republican Party doing right now, this is not totally new. It's coming from a long line of history of the same things happening. And the more we understand that history, the more we understand how these things work, the better we can fight it. And so that's what makes this series, Redacted History, so important. Because I want to talk about some of the things that they don't want you to know about. And by they, I'm not talking about some Illuminati conspiracy that people are controlling the U.S. history curriculum in high schools. But I will tell you that your U.S. history class did not teach you anything about what has really gone on in the world over the past century. And so that's some of the things that I want to talk about. And it's really important that we understand those things because it's not just about forming beliefs in certain things and holding on to them for the rest of your life. It's about between a combination of theory and history, understanding the concepts and the real practice of our past that helps you develop this sort of critical sense, a critical capacity to know when someone's feeding you BS. And a lot of the time, the stuff that you hear is total BS. 
And that includes what you hear from the media. And you'll hear about that in a moment, about even in the 60s, the same thing was going on. And so without further ado, let's get to Redacted History. Fifty-five years ago this month, the U.S. participated in the genocide of up to a million people in the internment of a million more in concentration camps. But I bet you've never heard of this story. So the question I want to ask is why? Why is there this untold story of Indonesia 1965? And what does it have to do with today? What do we need to learn about our history in order to make sure that we don't repeat those same mistakes of the past? So our story begins in 1945. Indonesia is made up of 17,000 islands and in the 1960s was the fifth largest country in the world. They declared independence from being a Dutch colony in 1945. And after several years of colonial war, as the Dutch tried to reclaim the territory, they were finally able to establish full independence under what this man, Sukarno, called guided democracy. Now we should be clear, it was not really democracy. But in the Cold War, there was no way to be totally neutral between Washington and Moscow, the US and Russia. You had to pick a side. And Sukarno picked the side of the United States. He tried so hard to stay on the US's good side. He constantly talked about the Constitution, about Paul Revere in his speeches, and while his foreign policy was pretty anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist, he tried his best to walk that line in a way where he didn't actually end up making any enemies in Washington. But the thing was, Sukarno allowed the existence of the PKI, or the Indonesian Communist Party, which was pretty worrying to the US because they didn't want to see any sort of growth of a communist movement in any of the countries that they were working with. But because in the past he had put down some revolutions and uprisings run by the Communist Party, they saw him as sufficiently anti-communist for their purposes, and so they started what they called the Jakarta Axiom, which was to say that he might not be perfect, but it was enough that we didn't need to go there and invade in the way that we did in Vietnam. But this pretty quickly began to collapse, especially under Lyndon B. Johnson. Because while JFK was pretty friendly to Indonesia, to Sukarno, and to a lot of the global south, LBJ didn't take the same stance. And Sukarno tended to be pretty antagonistic to the West. This, of course, was deeply annoying and angering to Washington, because while he still was able to use that pro-US rhetoric, like citing Paul Revere, it didn't matter when it came to jeopardizing US interests. And so in 1957, when a rebellion broke out in the western half of Indonesia, People had to wonder, where were they getting their planes? Where were they getting their weapons? How were they able to burn down villages? Well, the answer, of course, was who else? The CIA. In 1958, the Indonesians were able to shoot down a plane, and it turned out that this man, Alan Pope, was the pilot. He was a CIA agent. It turned out the CIA had been funding the entire operation secretly. Not even the State Department knew at the time. This was obviously the beginning of the end for Sukarno. The US was totally gunning for him at this point. So he kept trying to nationalize the oil industry to try and create some economic growth. And of course, all of the West was opposed to this as their oil interests, of course, didn't line up to that. Coincidentally, it does seem like oil tends to come up a lot in our imperial adventures, but that's a story for another time. And this intent to nationalize the oil finally set the US over the edge. Because LBJ was more comfortable with war than Kennedy, and the Secretary of State George Ball said that a loss of Indonesia to communism would be the biggest thing since the fall of China. Now some of you may have heard of the domino theory regarding Vietnam, which was to say that, especially in the global east, 
and in the global south if certain nations were allowed to continue on the path towards communism or the path towards socialism then a domino effect would occur and if one country were to fall then others around them might follow this threatened the world order with the u.s at its peak and so this brings us to the september 30th 1965 movement for years, the U.S. had expended great amounts of resources on training the Indonesian military in Kansas in order to indoctrinate them with pro-American ideals. This made the Indonesian military the most strongly and staunchly pro-U.S. and anti-communist institution in, in Indonesia. The night of September 30th, we know that there was a plan in place to kidnap six generals, but in the end, they all ended up being murdered. When the generals' bodies were found, Suharto, one of the generals, who wasn't actually at the peak of the line of command, ended up taking control. He was very well known also to be very friendly to Washington's interests, especially when it came to oil. When Suharto took command, he shut down all of the media in the country from all parties. And the only publications that were left open started printing a propaganda story that the Gurwani, the women's movement, were a group of witches that were carrying out a satanic ritual on the generals and that the PKI, the Communist Party, was also trying to launch a coup against Sukarno. The early phase of spreading that anti-communist narrative was helped greatly by the equipment that Washington provided. And radio and news around the world, from the New York Times to the BBC, parroted Suharto's storyline uncritically. While Suharto kept talking about this storyline, where the PKI and the Gurwani had tried to stage a military coup, he knew very quickly that this was all a lie. He ordered an autopsy of the generals and it became very clear that they were all shot to death and not stabbed in the way that he had talked about. Even though he totally knew he was lying, Suharto basically made it a national religion to believe in this story of the evil Girwani witches carrying out satanic rituals on the generals. The thing was, this story wasn't even that creative. It was almost identical to the story that was told in order to facilitate a coup in Brazil not even a couple of years earlier. Now this is where things started to get pretty bad. Suharto and his military started to round people up who had any sort of association with the PKI, which turned out to be over a quarter of the country, but really they only needed to get a small population of them before it scared everybody else into total submission to them. Now through all this, the US started to provide lists of names of thousands of suspected communists and known communist party members, so they could be murdered and checked off of lists. This is important because the PKI was a perfectly legal political party, and just days later, members of the party were being murdered for no crime committed. An embassy political official actually said it was a really big help to the army to provide those lists. I probably have a lot of blood on my hands, but that's not all bad. The US made it very clear to Sahardo that oil nationalization could not go ahead, and if it did, they would completely withdraw support for the military coup. They kept pressuring him and destabilizing the economy in order to get Sukarno out of power and to put in Suharto. The US had been waiting for years to try and jump on any sort of opportunity they could find to get rid of Sukarno. And when the September 30th movement came along, they immediately jumped on the opportunity. They provided weapons and kill lists and encouraged a full government takeover, which they full well knew could only be carried out if accompanied by mass killings and disappearances, which is exactly what happened. When Sukarno was eventually removed from power, it was seen as a massive victory in the Cold War. 
It was such a huge win that Indonesia went overnight from standing up for neutrality and anti-colonialism around the world and leading a third world movement of the global south to being completely in Washington's corner on all issues. And they opened up their economy to US oil companies. A State Department official actually said that no one cared, as long as they were communists, that they were being butchered. In the end, it was seen as such a massive victory that Indonesia was such a big domino that if it weren't to fall and it was fully in the US's corner, then most of Asia would be safe from communism. That's actually what caused the US to be okay with losing the Vietnam War, because by winning in Indonesia, Vietnam just became a small lost battle while Indonesia became essentially winning the Cold War. And that's why this story has gone so untold throughout the world for so many years. It's because it was such a massive victory that unlike Vietnam, which was a very glaring failure that needed to be explained and was very much uh, politicized in the US because there were US boots on the ground there, in Indonesia there was no need for that. The US was able to quietly get involved and quietly aid a genocide that they didn't even have to touch. They didn't have to go in and actually commit all of the murders that happened in the Vietnam War. None of that needed to happen because it was such a massive victory and such a indirect operation by the US that there was ostensibly no blood on their hands. And that was how they were able to hide that history from everyone in the same way that Suharto was able to on Indonesian soil because it was so successfully put away that Indonesians lived in terror for the rest of their lives that they were gonna end up going to jail if they even so much as spoke about what used to be the PKI. Even to this day, the sacred Pancasila monument in Jakarta is just steps from where the general's bodies were found and it memorializes the violence done by the communists. There is no mention whatsoever of the genocide carried out, even after Suharto left power and Indonesia became a democracy. They still refuse to converse or even teach the basic history of what has happened in that country. Instead, the museum gives a whole tour of a history of so-called communist betrayals, and it ends with a message. Thank you for observing some of our dioramas about the savagery carried out by the Indonesian Communist Party. Don't let anything like this ever happen again. So what does this teach us for today? What's important that we remember is that Suharto and Brazil, none of them invented this playbook. We're the ones who created it. We taught it to despots and dictators around the world, but it originated with us. And now, since we've been exporting it for decades, now all of that is coming home. Because narratives of communists and radical leftists trying to take over the country or take over the government or destroy your family. Why does that sound familiar? You're fighting against an oppressive left-wing ideology. By socialists, Marxists, and far-left extremists. Radical left, radical left, left-wing radicals. They want to end the American dream. Defeating the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. For decades now, the US government has been sliding towards a surveillance state, towards authoritarianism, and we should be wary and worried about those things. But we have to keep in mind where all of that is coming from. Because especially this year with the protests and with Trump's willingness to send the military into Portland and into DC right around the White House, we've seen his willingness to take it all a step further. Trump isn't getting all of this out of thin air. He's pulling it from the past whether he knows it or not. 
I want to be clear about something because I might sound overly paranoid here. I'm not saying that Trump and the GOP's endgame is to carry out some massive genocide against everyone seen as left to center in this country. That's not my point. My point is that time and time again, we've seen these far right movements carry out these anti-communist narratives in order to take away people's rights and in order to carry out their own power grabs. We have to be wary of that because it doesn't matter whether or not you actually are a radical leftist. It doesn't matter whether or not Joe Biden or the Democrats are actually communists. It matters whether or not you can convince the people that they are. It's not even about making them radical leftists. It's about making them a foreign, unknown other. Think about how we haven't even heard about Mexicans or Muslims in this election when that was the key issue in the 2016 election. It's because now, rather than foreigners and immigrants being the other, the evil other, the evil unknown in this equation, it's now the Democrats. It's now your fellow Americans that have become the enemy. And that's what makes these stories so important is that it shows exactly historically how easy it is for democracy to break down right in front of our eyes. And it also shows us exactly why history is so important to us, because it helps us avoid repeating the mistakes of the past. Our opponents have pl spent plenty of time being the architects of that history, so we at least need to understand the way that they operate. And more than anything, we can take a page from that Indonesian monument, because we have to make sure that we don't let anything like this ever happen again. Now, if you enjoyed that story, I highly, highly recommend Vincent Bevins's book, The Jakarta Method. He's a Washington Post and LA Times reporter. Highly recommend you follow him on social media as well. But he went in depth about what happened in Indonesia and connects it to the greater history of the Cold War that has really gone untold. And I, for one, knew almost none of it. Actually, really none of it. And so there's kind of this feeling of disorientation that comes when reading it. Because there's this feeling of the ground falling out from under you. You, you realize how little of the institutions, the, the mainstream media institutions and our politicians, that we're bred from birth to understand as kind of the end-all be-all of truth, how much they perpetuate these illusions and these myths of a totally rewritten history. Of course, there goes the saying that history is written by the victors, but it really goes deeper than that because we don't just retell the history from our perspective. Sometimes we just erase it. So we're going to go now to my great interview with Mr. Thomas Durkin. All right, so my guest today is Mr. Thomas Durkin. Uh, Mr. Durkin is a legendary national criminal defense attorney based in Chicago. Uh, he's endlessly battled to uphold due process in extremely tough legal circumstances, representing numerous Guantanamo detainees and suspected terrorists, and litigated against the Trump administration's Muslim ban. And he currently serves as the Distinguished Practitioner in Residence and Co-Director of the National Security and Civil Rights Program at the Loyola Chicago Law School. Mr. Durkin, thank you so much for being my very first guest. Nice to be here. Thank awesome. you. We'll jump right into it here. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett, Trump's pick to replace RBG. Uh, her nomination looks pretty likely, and uh, she has a pretty extensive uh, record of anti-worker, pro-corporate decisions, and of course her religious tilt on her decisions. I just wanna get your take on the stakes at, uh, at play here for her nomination and what a 6-3 conservative majority looks like in the Supreme Court for the decades to come. Well, uh, until um, 
the gathering in the Rose Garden and the spreading of the uh, pandemic amongst the, uh, all the people that were there without masks, including Father Jenkins from Notre Dame, uh, where she's on the faculty and is a graduate of law school, which is my alma mater as well, an undergraduate. Um, I, I'm not as sure today, um, whatever day it is, things change every day, but on October, Saturday, October 3rd, I, I think her nomination is not as uh, sure as it was Thursday. Um, if for no other reason, um, it, it, I, I'm told there was another Republican senator that, that tested positive after being at that ceremony um, I think there's three or four people, so and I think they have to vote from the floor. I don't think they can vote remotely. They're currently uh, down to forty nine, forty nine. So if they if they lose another senator, they'll lose that tie break with Pence. That's what I think. So you know, I'm not sure it's a, it's a done deal, but I I think it might be a done deal in, the, in after the election. They may try to jam it through. Um, you know, in the lame duck period, assuming Biden wins. But, um, I, you know, she is a kind of a classic member of the Federalist Society, uh, which is the organization which has packed the court, so to speak, with uh, people of the mindset of uh, Anton Scalia uh, over the originalism or strict constructionist constitutional theory, uh, which I don't find convincing, but um, the Federalist Society has become extremely powerful uh, and particularly powerful in Republican uh, <clears throat> circles. Um, I, I think is it Trump has appointed 300 judges so far the um, probably the most consequential appointments are are in the circuit courts of appeals where Barrett sits today. Um, I, I don't have the number handy, but uh, there's a considerable number of circuit court of appeals judges that have been appointed. Most of them are Federalist Society uh, adherents and uh, those are really the highest courts in the land, but for the Supreme Court. And you know, for example, in Chicago, we have the, we're in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers uh, Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. And that's the court that establishes federal constitutional legal principles for that uh, circuit. Um, it's incredibly powerful. It is extremely conservative. It's always been conservative. I've been practicing in Chicago for 47 years, and it, it's always had a reputation as being somewhat of a conservative court, but it's never been as conservative as it is now. Um, and that, that same principle will certainly apply to the Supreme Court if she gets on it. Um, six to three is pretty difficult, um, particularly in 
these times when things have become so politically oriented, not that politics has ever been absent from the Supreme Court, but <clears throat> it's, it's a touchy subject now. Um, so it, it, it will definitely change things. Uh, it will make the, it make the, the liberal constitutional theory or philosophy that I grew up with from the Warren Court. I, I graduated from law school in 1973. And I frequently tell my students that you, you cannot recognize cons the constitutional law I grew up with because it was in the heart of the Warren Court and it, it was a very liberal oriented, just the opposite of the the originalist or the strict constructionist that it, it was a the constitution was a, a growing body. It changed over time. And that's how they changed the <clears throat> Plessy versus Ferguson. They, that's how they became, you know, Brown versus the board of education. There was a whole slip Miranda came in at that point. Uh, Terry versus Ohio on stop and frisk, uh, all kinds of procedural constitutional protections that became built into the criminal justice system and how it operated, which has been whittled away in the 47 years I've been at it greatly, um, such to the extent that we have we still have 40-some people in Guantanamo who've been held since. I have a client who's been held in Guantanamo now since 2002. He was on the first couple of plane loads, and uh, he's never been charged. And he's been, he's been ordered released uh, by the, the periodic review board that President Obama put in, but he didn't get the paperwork done between... Uh, the time Obama was leaving office, there's a 30-day requirement for the Department of Defense to certify that it's okay to release him. And since there were not 30 days left in the administration, Obama left it to the uh, Trump Secretary of Defense to make that decision. And it's really kind of a pro forma decision because the periodic review board's decision generally controls. and. Trump has never instituted any uh, the position or filled the position at the Department of Defense where that decision could be made. So he's effectively just suspended uh, that client. Uh, we, we're filing a pleading challenging that detention now under the suspension clause uh, of the Constitution, but. You know, it's those kinds of major changes that would be, it would have been incomprehensible when I graduated from law school. But today it's de rigueur. It's, it's, it's just, um, as, as I frequently say when I lecture, we, we've become a much angrier country, much more mean-spirited, uh, uh, Hey, everything, everything operates on fear these days. Um, mm -hmm. To your point about uh, Guantanamo, 
you know, Trump spent a lot of his time on the campaign trail talking about uh, how he wanted to even use Guantanamo for domestic prisoners and stuff. Uh, you've spent a lot of your career now, especially since 9-11 and the Patriot Act, sort of battling that growing uh, state of exception and the growing kind of creeping authoritarian national security state of sorts. Uh, what does kind of what you talked about where he's packed a lot of these federal courts, what will be the legacy that Trump leaves behind in terms of, uh, you know, the coming decades and how that slide towards the national security state will continue? Well, it's in fairness to Trump, it, it, it has been one consistent policy after another. Um, Obama essentially adopted George W. Bush's national security policies uh, when push came to shove. Yes, he tried to close Guantanamo. I, I think it was a <laughs> glaring mistake of his presidency to not do it right away. Uh, he thought that, I guess he thought he was going to be able to get bipartisan support and be the peacemaker, but that's not possible these days. But he, in my opinion, he should have sent planes down there and brought them back to the U.S. If they were on United States soil, all bets would have been off because then there's no question that the due process clause applies. But very recently, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, issued an opinion saying clearly that due process simply doesn't apply to the uh, Guantanamo detainees, which is rather frightening. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of, of the, the legacy on the... Uh, the war on terror, or the growing national security state, I think uh, the most important consideration to be your audience ought to be aware of is the growing demand for a domestic terrorism statute. Uh, there is no federal domestic terrorism statute right now. There is a federal uh, definition of domestic terrorism, which is used in the criminal code, which is used for sentencing purposes, but it, it's not, there, there isn't a statute that criminalizes domestic terrorism. And the FBI has been pushing for a number of years uh, to get a federal domestic terrorism statute. And Trump frequently refers to domestic terrorism except when it's the Proud Boys and the white supremacists that he wants to curry favor with. But to me, that's the most frightening and potentially dangerous uh, development that's, that's on the horizon. And I think that it will ultimately get past Trump or no Trump, but particularly with Trump. If he, Trump stays in office, then all bets are off in terms of uh, the national security state domestically. He, he, uh, he seems to have no regard for constitutional pr principles and somebody in his mindset of, you know, nationalistic, fear-driven ideology 
is is going to use those tools as best he can. He showed that in Portland when he went, when he sent the federal people in. Uh, he seems to be quite happy having these crazy fools running around as self-declared uh, uh, militias, which is totally illegal. Um, but this domestic terrorism statute is very, very dangerous because what it what it will do is give the FBI the authority to investigate groups. Uh, and once they start investigating groups, they, they'll have to do what they've done foreign is is they will then have to get convince Congress that um, they need to be able to label certain domestic groups as terrorist organizations. And that's that's how we pretty much prosecute all terrorism now. So it's material support for terrorism under section 2318 USC 2339A and B. And those are the tools that they use uh, to prosecute the people going overseas to join ISIS, who send money to Hamas, who send money to ISIS, those, those are all prosecuted as material support to terrorism cases. And once they begin to do that domestically, it's going to become very dangerous in, from a civil liberty standpoint. Because once they can, you know, they can say that the... Uh, the Bellarmine Catholic Social Democrats are a, a threat to the world um, and order, and they get designated, all bets are off. You, you, nobody could then give you a nickel. You can't, uh, you can't, you can essentially do nothing. And that will lead to all kinds of other abuses because they will then, in order to investigate uh, domestic terrorism, they're going to need the a domestic equivalent of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA, which is the that secret court in Washington that authorizes eavesdropping and surveil foreign intelligence surveillance uh, in a secret court. And it's my opinion and those who kind of follow and, and defend these cases, it, it's mostly everybody's conclusion that once they get the domestic terrorism statute, they will then need a domestic uh, eavesdropping statute of some sort. And then that's going to requ require a secret court. And you'll start the whole... Sort of bringing that whole NSA apparatus of surveillance that, right on home and exactly. especially you know you mentioned some of like portland and stuff really the big three moments that come to mind in terms of that that trump legacy he'll leave behind is of course portland uh and sending in the national guard there and the people were just dragging people away in unmarked vans uh of course washington dc when he marched out with the bible and just sort of sent the army in and then uh, you know, him sort of combining with, we've seen Portland police do it. But of course, at the debate, 
there is kind of this effort to kind of deputize those right-wing militias into sort of their own police force. But more than anything, you know, there's just sort of this disregard for uh, those basic principles. And when he, when he wanted to classify Antifa as a terrorist group, of course, the FBI came back and said, well, they're not a, a group. And as Biden said at the debate correctly, like it's an idea, not an organization. But it feels very easy if they were able to pull that off and say, oh, Antifa is terrorism. Well, now you can label anyone as Antifa. Are you, are you against fascism? Okay, you're Antifa. And it, and it feels very easy to kind of go down a slippery slope of, um, you know, once you're labeled, as you said, uh, no money can go your way. And uh, some of your, your constitutional rights are, are waived, right? There's no question about it. And I mean, for that matter, terrorism is an idea, too. That's why I think it was foolish to declare a war against terror. We, we haven't done well with wars. Um, I wrote an article uh, once in a law review about, uh, I called it something to the effect of uh, a permanent state of exception brought to us courtesy of the wars on crime, drugs, and terror. And uh, the criminal justice system, in my <clears throat> opinion, is not designed to fight wars. Uh, the criminal justice system is a procedural application of how we treat the violation of, of laws. And it's usually a uh, retrospective decision. You prosecute people who have committed crimes and <clears throat> the wars on crime, drugs, and terror are all prospective. Now, yes, you can have a war on drugs and you can set somebody up for uh, having sold kilos of cocaine, but what started in the war on drugs was a great informational system uh, that the DEA devised and it was you, you gathered information on someone. If, if you were stopped in a car in which somebody found three joints of marijuana and there were four people in that car and the DEA wrote a report of that stop, they would list the person who they, if they prosecuted, they would list the person they thought possessed the drug. And then they would list three other people at the bottom of the report into a system called NADIS. And I can't remember what it meant, but it was something, some type of informational distribution system. And uh, the name Seamus McGinnis would be forever in that computer system. So that if they stopped the car two weeks later that had five kilograms and Seamus McGinnis happened to be in it, that'd be helpful. And that's, that's kind of how the, not kind of, that's the way the war on terror has developed as well. It's, it's information gathering. And that's the classic product of surveillance. And you have the state surveilling its own citizens. Um, our, our mutual friend Bernard Harcourt has written a tremendous book on that. Uh, called the counter revolution. I think the, the subtitle is how the uh, 
government went to war against its own people, which I think is, is very poignant and astute. It's true. It's what's happened. Um, you know, it's as if we had a revolution, which we didn't have, and we're now, and we have a counter-revolution that for the revolution that didn't take place. And, and this, this whole, the national security state has been out of control for a long, long time. And people are now just coming to grips with it, uh, which is another reason that, that just four more years of a Trump presidency would be a complete disaster for civil rights. Not that Joe Biden is a, a great constitutional civil rights advocate, but I, I think Biden is certainly uh, wise, and I think he would select decent judges, and I, I don't think he's a, a fear-monger. Uh, I think he's, he's much more capable of exercising judgment that, that this presidency doesn't seem to be able to do. Absolutely. And to your point about Dr. Harcourt, uh, I would recommend that everybody check out the counter revolution. I will, I will put a link to that. Uh, and he wrote an, a wonderful article, I forget for who, but uh, about how, you know, the, the book is written in 2018, but it ended up being really prescient for this year with the protests. Uh, because like you said, there was really no revolution, but they launched a counter revolution against just sort of a, a, an entityless enemy. But then they found their revolution this year with, 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 the, with the protests. And so they, they you know, had the drones going over Minneapolis and stuff. But uh, just one last question for you. In terms of uh, the election, um, Trump and the GOP have very much telegraphed that their plans are, are tending towards, you know, they want the Supreme Court to decide the election, uh, sort of a Bush-Gore redo. Um, if they're able to pull it off, uh, wh what do you see as the ability of, you know, litigators in the courts uh, working ag against or with the, the judges that probably he's appointed, which, which plays to his advantage in this case, but uh, what, what legal routes and then what maybe civil insurrection or civil protest routes are able to be taken in order to combat uh, an election fraud case that, that they might try to make? Well, I'm pretty cynical, but I'm not cynical enough yet to believe that just because Trump appointed somebody that they would vote him in um, as a favor for uh, the appointment. I, I, I don't see that happening, although I, I've been fooled before. Um, I, <clears throat> I, I have a lot less faith in our judicial system than I did when I started my idealistic Don Quixote-like uh, approach to the system uh, when I came out of law school. But um, it also included being a federal prosecutor, I might add, but, uh, which sometimes they don't like to admit that I was one. But uh, the, I, I, I find it incomprehensible, and I hope I'm right on this, uh, that just because 
Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and if Barrett gets there, were appointed by Trump, that they would therefore have to deliver that opinion for him. Um, I, I'm, I haven't reached that point of cynicism yet. Could it happen? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but I, I'm also, I don't know enough about election law. Uh, I, I know, I mean, I, I guess it would presume it would have to come down to one state because at least Gore versus Bush, as I recall, was all simply over the vote in Florida. I get the impression he wants to throw the votes, the, the controversy up in, in like all the battleground states. I don't know how that would work out. I mean, in many ways, those are more state court actions, uh, which would be less influenced by politics. But I can't, I, I, I'm a lot more fearful that he will attempt to cause, I think he's telegraphing that he wants civil unrest. I'm much more fearful that he will, and now that he's sick, if he, assuming he recovers, he may have to declare some type of state of emergency, which is one of my pet um, topics. But I, I'm fearful that he's going to try to cause civil unrest so that he can declare a state of emergency and then declare the election off. Uh, I think that's a bigger fear. I, I'm, I'm more fearful of that than I am whether Gorsuch is going to tip the scale. I, I think I, I have a lot of respect for John Roberts. I, I, I knew people that worked with him when he was a lawyer and who, who thought very highly of him. He grew up in the town I'm in today. I, we have a place in Long Beach, Indiana, and he grew up here. And people speak highly of him here that remember him. Um, I, I, I have a lot of respect for Roberts. I, I think he's the real deal. And I think he also understands his place in history and it's his court. And I, I don't, I, I, I have a lot of faith that Roberts won't let his court become a political tool for, for that purpose. I, I think it, I think he might be happy philosophically letting it shift more to the right. Uh, but I, I, I'm not, maybe I'm just naive, but I, I don't, I'm less concerned about that Bush versus Gore scenario than I am whether or not he can suspend, convince. My understanding is the idea of suspending the election is all up to the various states, but um, they, the Republicans, I believe, control more states than the Democrats. So it's a very dicey issue. And I, and I think that this, this nod to the right-wing extremists ought to be the most frightening thing that everybody pays attention to because it's, it, it's, it, it, the debate I thought was hardly even dog whistling. I think it was outright incitement and uh, coming from the president of the United States is it, it pretty, pretty astonishing. Uh, but 
pretty yeah. unprecedented even uh you know just generally speaking but especially for modern america for for something like that to happen on the national stage so well, thank you but it, go ahead we've never experienced anyone like him and in some ways this not novel thought you know he's a symptom more than he but that just because he's a symptom doesn't mean that he isn't extremely dangerous he's a very very dangerous man and these are very very dangerous times if anybody cares about um, civil liberties and, and the preservation of our republican form of government um, for your listeners i'd recommend there's an excellent article by noam chomsky a week or two ago that uh, talks about how easily it would be how things are unraveling and how thin the line is between anarchy and rule of law uh, and he refers to uh, the federalist number 10 written by james madison and i recommend that to all your listeners because it's frightening it's it's the uh, it's the, the federalist tract that talks of factions if you, you may remember reading that in the civics class or something but it's it talks about factions and and it talks about how delicate the balance is in a republican form of government which we have everybody says oh you know it's all democracy uh, they were very afraid of straight democracy and uh, they read I recommend Federalist Number 10 to all your listeners because it's very prescient and warns about exactly the state that we're in. Absolutely, especially with um, you know warning against the power of political parties that, that when they have as much power as they do now, that will be the end of the republic as we know it. So. Yeah. Mr. Durkin, thank you so, so much for taking the time to be my very first guest here. My Uh, pleasure. Well, on that uh, very positive note, we will conclude our very first episode of Social Point. If you made it this far in the video, thank you so, so much for watching. It means the world to me. Thank you again to Mr. Thomas Durkin for doing the interview. And if you get a chance, please subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to get the podcast format. It really means the world. Thank you so, so much for watching, and I will see you guys on Thursday. Take care of yourselves.